Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. At a time where big tech and democracy don't seem to mix, Is there another way where digital connection can be used to help strengthen our democracy? What would it even look like to have technology help communities to lead their own change? Today's Changemaker Chat is with Mina Poliniapan. She is the founder of Atma Connect, which works in countries across the global south to use technology to connect and build resilience. Mina has spent years building technology where neighbours help neighbours. Something quite different from the status quo social media, where neighbours spend a lot of time scaring or attacking their neighbours. Our conversation begins with her journey into this work, where she learnt a series of insights that helped her create the ingredients for building a technology that centres on the value, skills and gifts of every individual. She talks about how she has worked to build a scale that fosters power with people and how that has allowed her app, Adamago, to respond to disasters and vaccine hesitancy. This is also a conversation about human-centred design and how listening is such an obvious but radical approach to changing the world. So, let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemaker Chats. Conversations with people changing the world. Changemakers also produces episodes that are feature stories about social change campaigns. Changemakers are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers, and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. Changemakers also runs an organising school where you can sharpen your skills to make change in the world. All the details are on our website where you can also sign up to our email list. It's changemakerspodcast.org. Welcome, Mina. It's wonderful to have you here on Changemakers Podcast. Thank you so much. Excellent. Now, we always start with asking our guests to describe what kind of change maker that they are. You know, what what do they do in the world that causes that causes change? Tell us a bit about what you do that causes change. I think it emerges from my feeling that everyone is a change maker and that every person is brilliant and ingenious. And by connecting people with each other, that we can build this force of power to create the world that we want. Excellent. I love it. So a democratized, deeply participatory vision for how we make the world different. But in particular, how have you taken that value set and that approach and applied it in your work? What do you do to operationalize that way of seeing the world? So I think we're in an incredible time in history 
the ubiquity of technology just makes all of these connections possible in ways that they haven't been before. So what we can do is, is sort of to create these networks of power from below that can create a groundswell. So these people who are brilliant and ingenious and who happen to live in a low-income community or happen to live in a place that floods all the time, that they can become visible through technology to say, I have this problem, that they can connect with others who have the same problem. There's flooding in the streets, that they can come together and take collective action to to advocate with governments, to create infrastructure, to desilt rivers, that they can organize to come together to uh, do that work themselves, that they can spread their solutions to each other so that we're not, uh, it's really sort of technology and the internet 2.0 or 3.0. So we're not using mobile phones to tell poor people what to do or to collect information from poor people, but we're using it to build this peer-to-peer communication and connection that um, builds their power and takes us to a, a fairer, more just and sustainable, resilient place. And what I love and what we're going to talk about across this podcast is this is not just a, ni- a nice idea. You've been doing this in a bunch of different countries for quite a period of time, learning lessons about actually how the internet and, you know, design thinking, localised organising can uh, can actually come together to create resilience in communities, whether it's in response to floods or, or other crises. And we will get to that in a second. But what I'm wanting to start with is to understand better about why would you do this kind of work? Like where did this quite distinctive combination of ideas come from? I, you know, I'm, I'd invite you to go back as far as useful in your, in your memory, in your story, to sort of give us a sense as to why you've chosen to, to build technology in in this kind of way and in the kind of places that you're working, particularly, you know, in the global south? So I'm going to go pretty far back. I, I just came to this realization probably only in the last year that this is kind of an important inception point. And I'm going to talk about sort of four key moments in my life. And the first is at, at birth. Uh, I was born the third girl in a family in uh, Chennai in South India. And very soon after my birth, my father, you know, left for the United States to get an education. There was all this pressure to earn money for all of the dowries for these three girls that, that were now in the family. And my mother left soon after to follow him. And I actually was raised by my grandparents in India for, for five or six years. I didn't know my parents. And, and so that the memory of growing up in India is is very strong in me. But I think that the thing that I'm realizing is that there was a way in which there was this lack of value, let's say, in, you know, sort of being a girl in this environment or that I think my entire life and career has really been about valuing the things that really are incredibly valuable, nature, people that that 
that we really need to shift our economy and our approach and our society to value those things that are brilliant and uh, incredible. So that's sort of one story, and sort of and and you'll see sort of at each point why it's I it it just deepens this idea of value. And just also thank you for sharing that story. I mean, that's an extraordinary it's an extraordinary story to have sort of let, let yourself feeling like you were a, a burden, a, a requirer of dowry rather, and having to learn across life actually the value that, that you bring and then being able to see that in everyone, human and the more than human as well. What an extraordinary way to arrive on the planet. Yeah. Um, thank you for, for saying that because it's not really a story I – I share very often, but I'm, I'm starting to realize that it was sort of the inception of this this journey. And the second is, you know, I, I was very passionate about the environment, which happened in high school. And after uh, becoming an environmental engineer, I went yeah, to yeah, India. How did you become passionate about the environment in high school? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, it was a summer program and, um, you know, this was 30 years ago and uh, there was a speaker who was talking about how the earth was going to hell in a handbasket. And it was just this lightning rod moment where I just, you know, this beautiful planet that, you know, the fact that we were trashing our own, our only home in the universe was just uh, you, you know, just really, it, it just was my life's mission. And my life's mission expanded like one step further, which is like the people who are most affected by environmental issues and who are marginalized and ignored and invisible and the planet. It's sort of these two who, who just aren't at the table. There aren't, they aren't at the table of decision-making or power. So when I went to India and uh, was, you know, as a newly minted environmental engineer and uh, saw that, wow, public health issues, are, env- environmental issues are public health issues. People are living and dying. Um, the rivers were open sewers and you know, the number of children under the age of five that were dying of waterborne disease. It was just, it it was a tragedy. And working in uh, environmental justice communities in the United States, in West Oakland, uh, where there were certain people, people of color and low-income people all around the world who were bearing the burdens of um, the externalities that the economy was producing, that they, they were really concentrated um, in these places. So that was sort of the, the second kind of thing where it's like, okay, so the, the two things that we really need to bring to the table are these two forces. And another moment that I that was really transformational for me was when I was working on water and climate in India, and this is when I had small children myself and I was in India working on water and climate change. The first woman that I met was a woman living in uh, an urban informal community or slum who, uh, who didn't have access to water. And that morning I had, uh, you know, visited the water utility and they said, we have 99%, you know, everyone, 99% of people have access to water but I had been meeting communities all afternoon that didn't have access to water. And, and yet she had a mobile phone (laughs) and it it was just this, this tremendous, um, you know, sort of dichotomy that I thought, well, 
wow, we can really use this ubiquitous technology to put people on the map, to make visible the invisible, the invisible urban poor. And so that was a light bulb that was like, how can we use technology for, for good to, to change the, di- the dynamics of power? That is extraordinary that you were able to actually see that link. Like, not to, to share too much, but I've been, I, I remember visiting Durban and going to an informal settlement and doing some work in a school there. And they didn't have access to clean water, but they had, everyone had a mobile phone too, but I never put the two together. You know what I mean? That quite takes quite a distinctive mind. I started thinking that we had to organise, which is what I ended up doing with my, my, my life. But it's in the fact that you saw the technology and saw the the fact that it could be a, a route for change, that's really thats really interesting. I mean, you had you already been looking at technology. Like what what do you think allowed that to click? You know, I think I, um, I've been very focused on solutions, I guess, you know, and sort of like being an engineer, you're like, we can we can get closer to you know so I, there there are academics that say the problem with solutions is solutions, and I I really feel like I I, I kind of I just love the fact that we are progressing in in so many ways and that there are so many opportunities for the technologies that are being created to uh, to be used for good. And um, I, I, yeah, maybe it's just because I'm a little bit of a, you know, techie at heart. <laughs> yeah, maybe it just it came together because of that. The second woman that I met in, in India during this time, she was um, a woman who managed her community water system. And she had developed this ingenious homegrown solution for saving water in the community water system through valves and pipes and uh, the system that she'd put in place. And there was really, she was, she was incredible. And there was no easy way for her to share that solution with other people, even in her city that could benefit or other people in other places that could benefit. And in, in working in development, you really see that these, you know, there are these like, oh, incredible solutions that you hear about in um, Geneva or in New York. But you, the people who really need these solutions are not the ones that are able to share them with each other. And so, you know, again, I was thinking, wow, we've got we have this technology now to like information can move at the speed of light. It's how can you know, how can we actually create new pathways for information to flow? So we're not sort of using data to aggregate power and, and wealth in certain corners, but that we're really creating like that, that it's distributed. And the, the last thing I'll mention is when I was working on a project, so I was like, okay, let's, let's use mobile phones to transform the world and improve services for poor people. And uh, I was working on a project in Indonesia, which was funded by a development agency. And in this project, we ended up reaching for a million dollars, uh, 2000 people in two cities. And to me, that was just outrageous. And here's, here's why that happened is because we weren't able to change what we said we were going to do based on what people said they wanted. And I, you know, at that moment I decided to start, start an organization and really take a radically different approach to development 
and I mean, this quote unquote development. One is to take a human centered design approach to it. So to put the people that were most affected at the center so that they could drive the change that they most wanted. Right. And that meant whatever solution you were you were uh, thinking was needed that you were completely humble about it and not attached to it and that it could shift and change based on what it is people really wanted. And, you know, looking in, uh, you know, my backyard at, at, in that same time frame, Google and Facebook were reaching a billion users. So it was so clear that we could create a technology product that could reach this massive scale. And we needed to do it in a way that really centered the the people that were most affected so that they were leading the way. So before we go on to explore the magic that is this organisation that you set up at Atma Connect and the apps at Atma Go that have taken the world by storm, particularly in the global south, allowing this intimate design-centred, localised, connective movement to take hold – can you explain to the, explain to us, explain to me, um, just just what what it is that you then set up, what it is that you now do, what is that organisation? Explain some of the elements so we can yeah. break it down. So Atma Connect has uh, built and deploys a local social network called Atma Go, and it's a platform for neighbours helping neighbours, and we've reached over eight million people in Indonesia and Puerto Rico. And on, on the platform, people are able to come to the platform and see information about what their neighbors are sharing. So people could be sharing about uh, where to get a COVID vaccination. They could be sharing about government services that are available. Fundamentally, and there are a couple of really incredible um, impacts that it's had in disaster. So people receive early warnings on Atmago. And a, a study that was done uh, by one of our partners, Qualcomm, found that um, people were taking early action as a result of that early warning. And at a scale of a million people, this was $106 million in avoided economic losses and over 6,000 years of healthy life. And, you know, it's really a demonstration that technology can do good and and that it needs to be trusted. Um, and I think that what we're seeing with some of the other platforms out there is that this lack of trust is really eroding the social fabric and the the good that it can do in the world. Another study by IDEO found that 80 over 80% of people said that they trusted the information on Atmago. And that trust makes so much pro-social action possible. On Atmago, uh, right after the COVID-19 uh, crisis started, Immediately in March, we created this all-in-one resource for COVID uh, as part of the site. And so finding out about the latest information about COVID numbers, as well as a database of information about where in, in certain places that we were working, people needed to know where there were beds available and where there were um, oxygen tanks available. So, so that's included on the site. There's also survivor stories. Uh, and it, this is really about piercing the misinformation bubble, the disinformation and misinformation bubble. There is a lack of trust in a lot of these Mar marginalized communities for the government or official information. And so it's really peer-to-peer -peer communication that, that pierces the misinformation bubble. And so these, 
these survivor stories are really at the beginning stages of the pandemic. It was people sharing that, you know, COVID was real and I, I had it and this is my experience. And in the later stages, it was having, you know, people just like you, right? So I'm a, uh, you know, I'm an Uber driver and here's someone just like me who got the vaccine and seeing that, you know, this is something that, you know, real people are doing. And one thing that we did in Indonesia was we did a pop-up survey uh, trying to understand what people's needs were around COVID. Domestic violence had been increasing. Anxiety and stress had um, increased during the pandemic. And so we partnered with the Indonesian Psychological Association and created a free telecounseling service so that, uh, and it's incredibly (laughs) powerful for women and for people who don't really know where to access this. Now they can get it for free through our site and schedule um, two appointments with uh, with a, a therapist. And it's been incredibly powerful for women and for children. Wow. (laughs) Imagine if other technology companies could follow your lead, there'd be less stories about drinking bleach and more stories about how to access psychological support. Like that is extraordinary. And we're going to talk about how you have built a company built on the principles, you know, of, of social change, of questions like scale and participation and how they're built, baked in, the values you've talked about in your own story, baked into the sort of the, the work that you've done and in dealing with issues not just like COVID, which is now, but but with water and so forth as well. So one of the things I was wanting to, I want to break down some of the elements of the sort of how you do your work and how this work is distinctive in the tech space, because I think it really is. And the first thing I wanted to ask you about is scale. So you talk about, I've talked here about that scale is the center of your work, scaling out this kind of participatory practice so people can solve problems that are immediate, can be more resilient, that can be valued and recognize their value in the creation of change. Tell us more about what you mean by scale in that, in, in that piece of work. What, what's the scale dimension? How, do, how does one scale? How have you learned to, to deploy that concept? I mean, I'm definitely obsessed with scale. I, I really just think that we do need to have alternatives that you know are reaching every single person, right? Billions of people, so that everyone can be a cha- change maker. What is it that we are doing that that is allowing us to achieve scale? That's a really good question. I think it's we. We have some really good stories about that. One is, I really think it's important to listen to your users and to be completely humble about the kind of change that you thought needed to happen. So when we first started out, we entered a tech for good competition that was sponsored by Vodafone Americas. And we we, we won the competition and that was incredible. And really fundamentally, it was about peer-to-peer communication. And the Silicon Valley advisors that we had, you know, during the tech for good competition were like, focus, focus, focus. And so we focused on peer-to-peer communication to improve, basically for people to share water price information so they could improve the affordability of water. And we launched that in, um, in Indonesia and kept asking our users, how can we make this better for you? And they said, you know, I'm not likely to change my water vendor, but I'd really like to share a lot more than just water prices with my neighbors. 
And so we did what I think a lot of projects don't do. You know, we threw away what we were developing and said, let's build what people want. And then when we launched this hyper-local social network, immediately people started using it around chronic flooding in Jakarta. And they were posting photos of flooded streets. They were telling each other what to do when the floods were coming. They were telling each other the location of flooding shelters helping each other sort of look out for signs of waterborne disease in children. So it was this entire ecosystem of information that we didn't even know was a gap that people were facing. And they were using the tool for that. So that was, so that was really a lesson in how do you achieve scale? You really listen to people and what they really want. And I'll, I'll tell you two more stories in this vein. The other piece is that, you know, I said that I'm, I was obsessed with scale. And, you know, I kept hearing from the, the field team in Indonesia that, you know, we need to have um, community ambassadors. We need to do digital literacy, citizen journalism trainings, and basically have a lot of human infrastructure to support getting people who don't normally share their voices online to be comfortable sharing their voices online. And I'm thinking, well, that, how, how can, how can that be scalable? You know, it's human infrastructure. And yet this is what fundamentally makes Atmago so successful, so powerful is that people trust it because there's, there's real change happening. And that was another lesson we learned from We've done thousands of interviews with our users and are constantly doing them. And at one point, you know, our user said, you know, it's fine for me to share information on Atmago and I, you know, I'm happy to do it, but I really want to see change on the ground as a result of what I'm, what I'm sharing. And that has been always been driving sort of the, the, the growth and change. And we're constantly changing and innovating based on what it is our users want. And I think that's the, that's the secret to scale. Yeah. There's so much in what you described because, you know, because that's not the only way of seeing scale. Like your way is a distinctive way. I think, you know, we're used to scale. That's like some sort of corporate power over where it's like a stretched brand run around the world. That's scale, you know, scale CNN or Google or Facebook, they're scaled in a certain kind of way. But what you're describing is a power with kind of scale, where the scale comes through the connection between people. This is what I'm hearing, that the fact they trust you because actually they trust each other and you're enabling that. Yes, absolutely. I I can't emphasize that enough. I mean, we are just a vehicle to, to allow sort of all that is good in humanity to be manifest and present. And, uh, you know, yes, there is the curation, it's ensuring it's a safe space, it's, it's all of those things. But it is what I would say is web 3.0, right? It's this network of networks, it's this decentralized system of power from below that can shift other locations of power. And 
also just, you know, like to just lift up the point you said about real change on the ground. I mean, you've got this hybrid model where there's offline stuff and online stuff. Like so often, certainly in the world of my world of social change, I've seen people abstract the two spaces. Like you're either a real world face-to-face community organiser, for which, you know, I confess I, I spent lots of time doing and it's great, or you're a digital campaigner, but the idea that those two people can have a conversation, not so much, Whereas you're showing in this in this space that actually these two worlds can intersect with each other and they can play to their strengths with each other and and that can work well in a, in a, in building a, a power with community in in these places that you've organised. Yes, yes, absolutely. I think that that's the that's the key. Um, you know, when we talk about this digital scale, I think that there is always the potential that. It gets so abstracted that you get into the the numerous problems with digital platforms that we have today, divisiveness and uh, fraying the social fabric and uh, the spread of misinformation. But when it's grounded in real people in real places, seeing real change, that's how we that's the future that we need is a tool, a digital tool that supports humanity to achieve the world that we want. I love it. I love it. It's, <laughs> I love it. I want that humanity. I want that world. So I also wanted to get you to talk about human-centered design. You've mentioned it several times. Some of our listeners will be going, oh, yeah, I know all about it. Plenty of our listeners will be going, uh, what? 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 Human-centered what? Why? Could you t- tell us what you mean by it? And also, I guess, how you've applied it in, in your work. Yeah, human-centered design is really sort of one of the pillars of our work. And we've been doing it from the beginning. And I, I really feel like there was there was a moment when we got an award from IDEO, which is this global design um, organization, and going out with them and doing human-centered design interviews just took it to a completely different level. And so I'll tell you about now how we've evolved it based on partnering with them is really is really sitting down with people it's this it's very empathetic and loving approach it's like really loving your users and understanding what their lives are like what what makes them happy what you know what what brings them joy and and what are what their you know what their daily lives are like what kinds of things they do what kinds of challenges they face and and designing based on based on that. So it's this process of constantly checking in to to ensure that you're elevating um, the goals that people have, that you're they're meeting you're meeting and exceeding their needs and hopes. And how we've applied it, we've applied it and shifted and evolved our direction so many times in so many ways. And I'll give you two examples. One is, you know, we really wanted a certain point to focus more on women and to get more women to be using Atmago. And, you know, at a certain point a few years ago, we had 45% of our users were women. And this is something in partnership with Vodafone, too. They're really focused on, I mean, there's so many studies and research that show the critical importance of women in um, household economic development, in educating children. And in the field that we work in, in disaster, women and children are 14 times more likely to die in disaster than men. So 
we really wanted to center women in our work. And we were finding that we weren't hearing really enough from them. And so we, uh, we, we started doing focus groups of, of just women. And that was really transformational and sort, sort of like seeing the kinds of things that motivated them to share things online and almost this, you know, friendly competition or uh, gamification. So we added gamification to our site. If you're, you know, sharing content or, you know, getting likes on content that um, you would, you know, get more points and elevate your status, you know, from Atma goer to teacher to professor and things like that. And, and, those were really powerful for women. And then connecting this to things that they were really focused on and cared about. So we would host a hydroponics training for, for women, um, how they could grow food in their in their backyards. And then they were able to use Atmago to kind of continue to share best practices and how it was working for them. So that was, it was really, it was just an incredible journey. And now 55% of our users are women. So it was really you know, phenomenal that we could change the direction of who we were serving based on just really listening to their, to their needs. It's like a virtuous circle, yeah. really, you know, you listen and then you build things that are responsive to their needs and then people use it because you've listened. Like it's, it's amazing that let more people don't do this, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is. It is amazing. I mean, it is, um, I, you know, maybe it's it's hard to kind of let go of your idea of what you think people need. I'm not sure why more people don't do this, but if anything can come out of this conversation, I hope that more people do, that mm-hmm. we really listen to and um, build with uh, the people who need it most. And so I'm interested because one of the things you've done very recently is lean in to the challenge of our time, which is COVID, and to issues of, as you described earlier, you talked about all the work that you've done in being able to allow people to respond to the crisis, like in places like Indonesia, Indonesia, I'm in Australia, Indonesia is our neighbour, the crisis in Indonesia is very obvious to us, it's been, they've had a lot of, so much trouble. But then you've also not just leaned into how to get to a hospital bed or how to get psychological support, you've also leaned into this question of vaccination and vaccine hesitancy. And we know that Vaccine hesitancy has lots of dimensions, but we also know that if we don't vaccinate the whole world, we're likely to suffer with more variants that are going to cause more pain. It's incredibly important for the world that that we deal with this. How have you contributed to this? What have you done on this on this question? Share share a little uh, with us about that. So we have really brought like those local people on the ground. Uh, to share their stories about getting vaccinated. And I think some of the most powerful stories are of people who were hesitant about getting vaccinated and who, 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 who changed their minds based on some piece of information and then decided to get vaccinated. It's, it's really this power of peer-to-peer communication for behavior change is incredible. It's tremendous. It's it's the way that change happens, and being able to to find those people that that can sort of inject into their community, sort of another way of thinking about things, is is really how I think we turn the turn the tide on this. It's like you're scaling their leadership. Yes. Right. Yes. Like your community leaders, some of which exercise, you know, have followers in a community, they have power, but you lift them up a little higher and allow them to connect to an even broader audience. Yes. You know, it's 
it's very powerful. <laughs> it's very consistent with, you know, where I've come from as an organiser, the sort of principles that you'd apply, but I can see how they're resonating in this, in this, in your tech space. Yeah. And to take that even further, I'll tell you about a new feature that we just added, you know, in talking with our users, there was this, there's this real need that we had to elevate and serve community leaders. And so we created and launched a a new feature or kind of platform, which is about community impact. And this is in Puerto Rico and in Indonesia, where community leaders can go and document the work that they've done. So it becomes their resume to the world of the impact that they're having. And the platform allows them to share this with their community, get more support from their community, from the government. And a a piece that I think is really important is that they're able to document their actions and quantify the actions that they're taking. And I think in that process of quantifying that, the action, that they are going to magnetize the resources for expanding their impact. And, um, you know, that's by, you know, connecting to crowdsourcing work and people really, there's, there's a ton of money out there in the world. And it's like, if we can see the impact and it's validated and it's real, you know, it, we just have to get the money to flow to the, to the incredible impact that's happening in places around the world. And this, this tool gives community leaders a way to get themselves and the incredible work they're doing on the map. The power of recognition, right? You're a sort of, a, it's a recognition vehicle for them to, to then raise resources. It sounds incredibly powerful. So what I want to turn to now though, you've obviously demonstrated that technology has extraordinary power, but we also know that, you know, technology sometimes has extraordinary limits, right? You know, um, uh, the, the news of the, of the moment shows the limits of some of our tech giants and, and forms of power abuse that, that can occur in that space, right? It's like any, any sector, things for good, things, things for bad. And I know you've written on these questions. I wonder if you want to talk about the limits in technology and what can be done, you know, like for, for people who, are, who worry about some of the, the risks associated with technology, what, what sort of things can we do as, as citizens to guard against the limits that exist, the, the, of, against the abuses that can exist within big tech, within uh, digital, digital change? I think it's, it's good for people to be aware of what underlies a lot of the challenges that we're seeing now. And, you know, I've mentioned before that a lot of the, you know, tech platforms that are in the news these days that, uh, you know, it's been found that anger and hate and, you know, this kind of information spreads faster online and that there's, what's the economic model, right? Behind these, these companies. If, if, if we're monetizing eyeballs and you get more eyeballs on things that are divisive or spreading misinformation, uh, it, the incentives are misaligned. And I think that I think that we do need to create and use alternatives. You know, we need, we need to have a robust ecosystem of options for the kinds of connections we want to make. Uh, and technology needs to be a tool to help us 
to help us make those. And we need to build the new. I, you know, I, I think that we need to create more decentralized forms of technology platforms that are driving, that aren't extracting value, but that are ensuring that value remains within the incredible people who are change makers and in their communities, right? We can create that. I mean, it's really what the internet was intended for, was this idea of collective IQ. It wasn't about taking everyone's you know, great ideas and using it to centralize power and resources. So we're just on the cusp of, I think, inventing, reinventing what technology can and should be. Yeah, I think I feel that too, right? I f- you can feel that there's a sort of lack of satisfaction with what is happening with with social media in particular, but some of the big tech companies at the moment, and a and a real desire by people as individuals, but also by governments to explore explore a different way and to put some constraints on that space and to see that tech isn't some mythical over there thing, but it's a it's a human product and can be changed <laughs> and and can be built to serve our needs and we don't need to be serving it. So my final question, Mina, is just, you know, you've done an enormous amount of work over decades, particularly in the global south, but most interestingly for me, combining the sort of this sort of tech with building resilient communities all over the place, constantly learning from those communities to do that building work. When you look back at your career, is there a particular lesson a lingering lesson, something that sticks with you uh, that that you can share with us that others might be able to put into practice in the work that they do? Yeah, I think I'm going to have to say, listen to people, listen to the people that you're building something for, build with them. Yeah, I, I, I fundamentally believe that the people who are most harmed by our economic system, be they people of color or low-income people, that they are the ones who have the solutions and that we really need to build all of our systems to, to solve you know, climate change and environmental problems and inequality all at once. And all of those things are connected in these places and, and these people have the solutions. Yeah. We don't need to put on our clever hats. We can just put on our ears. <laughs> Thank you so much, Mina. It's been a delight. And I hope that people do take on the lessons and the insights that you've gained. More listening as part of the social change process, that would be welcome for sure. Thank you so much, Amanda. Pleasure. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tattersall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Lachlan Hodson. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our series sponsor is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all of our stories. And don't forget to take a look at our organising school if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of change making.